0: All right, good to see everybody. Um, we are in our third series, third uh, gathering of a series of five uh, topics that we're looking at is the, the Christian in and uh, in culture, and how that a Christian should engage culture. And today, um, we're tackling another poignant, uh, very timely issue, the issue of race relations, racial reconciliation, just how we as Christians should think about that, how we should. I uh, live in a culture and in a country that is increasingly uh, becoming hostile and tense. And there's just a lot of pressure in this area in our nation. So um, we'll get into that in just a second. Before uh, I do that, I want to give out a good resource that I, I just highly recommend. John Piper, you guys know, is a pastor that we really respect. He pastored a church. He just retired recently. but He pastored a church up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is itself a, a very diverse city. But uh, Piper grew up in Greenville, South Carolina and it, during the days of uh, segregation and the civil rights movement. And um, he has four biological children and later on in life, like in his 50s, uh, Piper, John Piper and his wife, Noelle, adopted an African-American child who I believe was born in Columbus. Uh, but she's from here, right? Is that right, Robert? Social worker is from here. Maybe a lot of you know her, Phoebe Dawson, a lady that's uh, a well-known you know, Christian in our community that helps with adoption. Um, so he has an african-american daughter and he uh, that's been one of the emphasis in his ministry and he wrote a book a few years ago a few years ago called bloodlines race cross and the christian um, i haven't read all of this i've read a couple of chapters it's really really good wonderful theology just a hard-hitting I see, yes carol you, you you want it so there you go you, you're you're or karen i'm sorry um your 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 um your hand was up so, anyway, we, got, we have it in the um, um, resource room uh, for a few bucks. So, ooh, there's a fight going on right now. So, uh, I want you to t- make, uh, get that and take advantage of that resource. So, when do we become conscious of the fact that we're different from other people? You know, I, I grew up um, uh, literally, uh, and I'm not misusing that word as much of our generation does now, like literally, dad, literally, it was the worst thing, literally, literally literally just minutes from Mexico. And I remember being the only um, white kid on my block and in the little elementary school class that I was at. And um, they used to call me gringo, which is a, uh, it's a Mexican slang term for white people. It's not, not necessarily derogative, although it can kind of be said sort of derogatively, but it's not like a, like a racial slur, it's just kind of a nickname for, for white people. And I thought that was my personal nickname. And um, uh, I kind of had a sort of Latino-sounding last name, um, so I just kind of, I don't know, I guess I just assumed I was a pale Mexican. And um, I was probably nine or ten, and this other little white kid moved to the neighborhood, and they started calling him Gringo, too. And I'm like, no, no, wait a minute. I I was like, that's my name. And they're like, no, man, like, all of you guys are gringos, you are, you're a gringo, and it was like, it was a, it was a, like a, a Copernican revolution, it was a paradigm shifting moment for me that what, what's going on here, and, and at some point all of us just grow up with this sense that we are different from other peoples, and we have a people that we're more like and other people that we're less like, and that often leads to great sin and hostility. So here's my goal tonight. Uh, I want to uh, first just establish very briefly a theology of what the gospel has to say about race relations. Then we're going to look at two, uh, a good example and a bad example from the life of Peter. Then five principles for how we as a church, I think, should pursue racial reconciliation. Then we're going to open it up for questions. So this is going to be, Lord willing, a little little quicker. So if you have a Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read a few verses there. Um, I know that you guys are familiar that I think that Romans 8 is the most important chapter in the Bible. I do not back away from that rather um, uh, bombastic statement. But I'm going to go ahead and say that Ephesians 2 is probably in the top five, if not the second most important chapter in the Bible. It is, the first ten verses of Ephesians are probably the clearest um, uh, description of how God saves people. It is, it is what God does to make dead sinners alive because he is rich in his mercy and why he saved them, to not just be, uh, you know, a, a cul-de-sacs of his grace, but that they would be conduits, that they would be, uh, cre- were created for his workmanship. And then halfway through the chapter in verse 11, he transitions to how he makes individuals Christians to then what he does with those individuals and he knits them together into a family. And remember, Jesus has come. We're in a transition in the redemptive storyline of God. In the Old Testament, God was working primarily through one nation, one ethnicity, the Jewish people, not because he loved the Jewish people more than the rest of the nations, but because during this particular phase of God's redemptive plan, He is working through one people so that that one people would be a blessing to all the nations. In fact, that's the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless you. I'll give you many children. And through you and the nation I create through you, I I will bless the nations. And that ultimately is fulfilled in Christ and the gospel. And how the church and the true Israel along with uh, Jewish believers and now Gentile believers are the display of the glorious gospel of God to an onlooking cosmic power. And so then in verses 11 through 12, he transitions. And so this is the transition. And here's the outworking of the gospel horizontally. So 1 through 10 is vertical. This is what God has done to rescue you. 11 through 12 is a lot of horizontal. This is the impact that the gospel should have on you. So I was listening to uh, a pastor, Tony Evans, who's an African-American pastor in uh, the nation of Texas. And he, um, I heard him say that we need to think about the gospel in terms of the content and the scope. And he made the statement in this particular, he said white evangelicals are very good at thinking about the content of the gospel and they're really good at getting that right. But they often minimize or forget about the scope of the gospel, the effect that it should have horizontally. So here's what Paul says. Therefore, remember, and he's writing to Gentiles. So, so there's these two groups of people at this time, Jews and everybody else, which is Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles, the whole world, only two types of people, Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise. So in this, in this Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, you were strangers before Christ came to, to the earth and before he came to you personally, you were outside. And he goes on to say you having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, meaning you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And you have to appreciate the strife and the tension between the Jew and the Gentile. It was more than just religious. It, it was ethnic. It was, it was, there was hostility between the Jew and the Gentile on every level. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, meaning Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, this is such an important little phrase, that he might create in himself one new man. So what he's saying is, is that, the, that the scope, the horizontal implication of the gospel is that one of them is that Christ has taken two people groups that were at hostility against each other, the Jew and the Gentile, and he has reconciled them first to God. And then secondly, he has reconciled them to one another by bringing them together as one new man. And now the primary distinction of humanity is not Jew or Gentile or any ethnicity, but the primary distinction distinction of humanity is whether you are in Christ or not in Christ one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross listen to this phrase thereby killing the hostility so let's think about that hostility in two directions the first way that Christ through his sacrificial death on the cross to absorb the wrath of a holy god who justly is, we are separated from justly because of our sin, Jesus extinguishes, kills the hostility between a holy God and sinful people by absorbing the hostility of God's right and just judgment that is barreling down on our heads and propitiating it, satisfying it, extinguishing it, and turning it into grace, reconciling us to God. But not only has he killed the vertical hostility, the outworking of the gospel, the scope of the gospel, is then that the gospel must also kill hostility horizontally and make two people who were hating each other as a result of sin now into one new man. So we see this, this content of the gospel and the scope of the gospel being having clear, obvious ramifications. In fact, that's the picture here in Ephesians 2. Of racial reconciliation as being one of the primary outflows of the result of the work of Christ on the cross. I heard an a, a African-American pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, who I just have a lot of respect for. He's a wonderful preacher. His name is H.B. Charles Jr. He used to pastor in Los Angeles. He was a young boy. His dad was a pastor. His dad passed away when he was 17 years old, and the church voted him in to be the pastor. And he started pastoring a church in Los Angeles, at 17 years old, did that for about 20 years, and a few years ago was called by this church in Jacksonville. He's now the pastor of Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. If you're looking for good pastors to listen to or podcast, this guy is it. He preaches in that kind of that, that African-American sort of cadence that just makes you just want to get up and just like, yeah, you know, just he, he can just bring it. His name is H.P. Charles Jr. And he said that some people say, I heard him say this, it's so good. He said, some people say that blood is thicker than water. Meaning familial relationships are thicker. He said, but blood is not thicker than water if that water is the water of baptism. And I think that's such a good way of putting it so succinctly that we are knit together. Here's a practical implication of the gospel. And this is something that we need to just say and hear is that the practical outworking part of the scope of the gospel is that we are more knit together for eternity with Christian brothers and sisters of other ethnicities, even ethnicities of people groups that we may be at war with as a nation than we are even with our own blood relatives who are not trusting in Christ. The gospel has a scope to it that includes and it really is primary in it, is racial reconciliation. Okay, so then let's look at two examples of this, a bad one and a good one. Actually, let's start with the good one uh, from, the same, from the life of the same, same uh, apostle, Peter. So Acts chapter 10, and let's just get a picture of what is going on in the church at this time. The gospel is spreading across the known world at the time. The day of Pentecost has happened. The Holy Spirit has fallen on these Jewish disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The 12 disciples of Jesus, the 120 gathered in the early church in Acts chapter 2, are all ethnically Jewish. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the, the, the thousands that were saved during that time, are all Jewish, right? They maybe spoke different languages, but they were all gathered in Jerusalem because they were Jews celebrating the feast. So the church is all Jewish, Something happens in Acts chapter 8. The gospel falls on these half-breed Sumerians, and it's kind of like, oh my gosh, what's going on? And, and some of them come to Christ. And now Peter receives this vision in Acts chapter 10. So let me start reading in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So he's a good Jew. He's, not, he's, 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 he's eating kosher foods. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter went down to the men and said, I, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for you coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man. So he's a centurion, he's a Roman, we know he's a Gentile, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. So God is superintending the passing of the gospel across racial lines he's just making it happen by his divine providence the next day he rose and went away with him and some of the brothers from joppa accompanied him and on the following day they entered caesarea uh, caesarea cornelius was expecting them and called them together with his relatives and close friends verse 25 when peter entered cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him but peter lifted him up saying whoa whoa killer easy stand up i too am a man and as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Now, you've got to appreciate the intensity of this scene. And Peter's going to allude to it here in just a second, verse 28. Jews and Gentiles did not mix. They didn't mix. It was forbidden to Jews to, to mix with these Gentiles and to, to, to associate with them. It would make them unclean. Peter's already drunk up about this vision of having to eat this stuff that's unclean. He's still got these tensions in his heart. And there's strife. The Gentiles don't like the Jews because the Jews look down the end of their nose at them. There's strife. Listen to what Peter says when he rolls up in the crib in verse 28. And he said to them, "Just this is your opening line. Like imagine walking into you know like south central LA. White evangelical. Knocking on the door. Bunch of African Americans. Excuse me, can, can, um, can I come in? Let me, I have an announcement to make. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And I asked why you sent for me. Hi, I'm Peter. (laughs) I mean, that's a good way to get yourself killed. But the Holy Spirit is pushing the gospel across racial lines. And he goes on, we won't take the time to read it, he goes on to preach the gospel. The gospel falls, Cornelius House believes, and Peter is obedient to this paradigm-stretching vision that he has to go and witness to these people that you have previously despised. And he does it. Now here's the interesting thing. I think it, it must be because Paul then just got became a Christian a chapter before, and then he writes Galatians, so there probably is a little bit of lag time between Paul and Peter becoming, you know, uh, ministry partners and talking to each other and getting to know one another. Then we see in Galatians 2, this was a, this was a wonderful example of, Paul, of Peter being obedient to the vision that God had for him. But then we're going to see sometime later he completely jacks it up. So go to Galatians chapter 2. We'll see. So we just saw a good example, now we're going to see a bad example. Peter's going to be hypocritical. So Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Just a few verses. But when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. This is Paul. Paul was, he, he was, he was a, a little rough. For before certain men came from James, James was one of the Jewish apostles, leaders of the church in, in uh, Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, when they, meaning the Jews, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party okay so just get a picture of what's going on here peter is going to the 13th street barbecue with all of the gentiles that he's sort of associating with and witnessing to saying okay you guys are christians you know you i preach the gospel to you believe it let's go get a pork chop sandwich then he hears about james and the jewish brothers coming and he's like ah oh man ah and he said, like, "What? I, don't, I mean, I don't. I, what? Oh, hey, I don't know these guys. What, what's your name? You know, he's acting like he's withdrawing, and so he's being hypocritical after he got it so right in Acts chapter ten. And listen to how Paul busts his chops. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy." But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, <laughs> like publicly, busting his chops, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so here Peter is really just sort of being hypocritical as he uh, gets it really, really wrong on the implications of what the gospel has done in in race, So, let's summarize before we work through a couple practical steps and then, and, and then let's have some discussion and questions together. Is that the gospel kills hostility. The gospel, for, 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 for us to only trumpet and believe the content of the gospel, that God has killed hostility between a holy God and sinful man, without also working that gospel out in its scope, that he's also killed hostility between people groups and sinners, then we, we, we essentially uh, adult the gospel. And we see even one of, uh, even one of the Lord's apostles uh, getting it very, very right and then very, very wrong. Okay, with that, a few practical steps for us as a local church, as Christians in America in 2015, uh, how we should pursue uh, racial reconciliation through the gospel. And I want to speak primarily here to—I uh, know that there, everybody in this audience is not white evangelical, but I want to speak um, to primarily to white people. And I think with—and I realize that this is an issue that goes far beyond white and black uh, tension that seems to be so prevalent in our nation today. But since it, since that seems to be the most um, acute. I think maybe any examples that I may have here are, are focused more on, on that. But I realize there's Latino people in here, there's Asian people in here, and all of these things apply certainly to the relationships that, 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 that each one of these ethnicities would have for one another. So, practical step number one. And if I say anything controversial, um, my email is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. One, primarily white evangelicals we need to be aware of our, our own blind spots. I think white privilege is a reality. I think the idea of white privilege is to some degree a reality. Now granted, I do think that it is used as an excuse at times. But I, I do think it's a reality that we need to realize. I think that there are certain neighborhood, certain kids that grow up in certain neighborhoods and certain ethnicities in our city and cities like ours that because of them being born into that context are at a significant disadvantage. And I think we need to be aware of that. And I, I don't think it really is a nuanced enough gospel-centered approach for us to take the one black guy who goes to Columbus High School who gets accepted to Harvard and then becomes a doctor and say, See! This is a land of opportunity! You come on! And I know I'm I'm painting with broad strokes, but I, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think that a poor black kid that is born in Booker T. Washington projects is at a significant disadvantage. And I think he's probably, in a lot of ways, at times... And this, again, is not an excuse for everything. He's at maybe more of a significant disadvantage than maybe a poor white kid. Now listen, I know that there's a thousand other caveats that you've got to say there, right? I get that. I get that. And I'm not saying that's an excuse for anything. I'm just saying that as the dominant culture, I think white people, white evangelical, white Christians need to be maybe a little bit more aware of our blind spots that this idea of white privilege, I think, to some degree, in some issues, in some areas, does exist. Does exist. So be aware of that. I know there's a thousand other things we can say as caveats to that, but blanket statement number one. Practical step number two would be that, primarily, being part of the dominant culture, that I think we should strive to be bridge builders. Uh, All of us, but I'm speaking primarily to the dominant culture, white Christians. What does this look like? I think it means taking the initiative, and I'm even thinking about practically within this church. I mean, just look for people of other ethnicities even in this church, and maybe take them to lunch and say, hey, brother or sister, uh, I would love to just take you to lunch and hear your hear your story of what it's like to be a Latino, or an Asian American, or an African American. Let me just let's just let me take you to lunch and let me just just download your story to me and let me just be blessed and encouraged by it and informed by it. That's just one sort of small little way um, that 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 a, a Christian in our church can be um, um, a bridge builder. Uh, There's a thousand other practical ways I'm sure we could think about if we brainstormed. But uh, take it on yourself to be thinking about ways that you can get outside of your context to engage people maybe of different ethnicities, starting in this church or in your spheres of influence. Okay, number three. Speak or post on social media publicly with a redemptive tone. I just, without fail, especially this last year or so when there seems to have been something that goes on with some racial strife or tension, Um, you know, maybe uh, something happens to a a black teenager and then there's a riot. And um, maybe even it's a justified police action, but broken people, sinners and broken places respond in broken ways and there's a riot honestly it kind of it just makes me cringe a little bit to see some Christians sort of it's almost like they take off their sort of Christian gracious redemptive gospel centered hat and they put on their this kind of political ideology sharp tongued well what about black on black crime what about all these that got killed by them okay all that may be true But I just think that when white people go to Facebook and they speak in defensive ways about things that are about about cultural issues that are so much more complex and nuanced than a bunch of poor black people rioting because of their upset. There's a thousand things going on there. There's a thousand and one things going on there, and a million underneath the surface. And for us just to assume that we know everything that's going on in that situation and with those people and in their hearts and that we can, it's just, it's just naive and unhelpful. And it is identifying more as a Jew or a Gentile or a, a European American or a, a white person than it is one new man. And so I think we should speak and post publicly with a redemptive tone. I'm not saying that there aren't critiques to be made of every culture. And I'm not saying that this doesn't give any ethnic group that may be doing unlawful things any license to do any of that. Don't misunderstand me. You know I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is a redemptive way, a gospel-centered, careful, nuanced way that a Christian should speak. When they have a a biblical understanding of sin and human nature and humanity. Related to this, and let's dig a little bit deeper. Number four, speak not only publicly with a redemptive tone, but speak privately amongst your own ethnic group with a redemptive tone. This is where it gets personal. White folks, and I can only speak for white folks because I'm a white folk. I know the conversation. You hear about something. You hear about a crime. You hear about this or whatever, and you give one another a knowing glance, kind of like, black thug. We do that. Oh, and we think that we're not racist. I have a black friend, as if... <laughs> you don't know me. I have, my best friend is black. Well, congratulations. Congratulations. Does that just exonerate you from all? Do you see how deep-seated it is in our heart when we give our own ethnic group that knowing glance? Oh, it's a black guy? Yeah. It's a black guy that robbed the bank, that carjacked the car, right? And I think that when our whispered conversations are like that, we don't realize what a formative effect they have on our subconscious worldview. And we, we just need to repent of that. I, I know I've had those sort of glances like that. I repent of that. I just I just think about myself like that. It's just disgusting. I, I grew up like that thinking I can remember joking about Mexicans in that way with my family. And we never considered ourselves prejudiced people, but we would sort of joke about, you know, Mexicans in that way and I'm ashamed of those little whispered glances that I would give my few white friends about you know whatever brokenness was working out in a Mexican culture at that time kind of adds yeah, that's that you know Speedy Gonzalez or whatever that, that, that's broken, it's sinful, it's heinous and it has a very formative effect on our heart and it's easy to get away with and not notice because we're just—it's just sort of inbred into our whispered conversations. I think we should repent of that, and we should seek to speak privately with our spouses and with our loved ones and our family with a redemptive tone. If you're not doing that, and then fifth and final before questions, I think we should wisely celebrate and pursue diversity in tangible ways. Um, a couple just outworkings of this. I think we should be a church, and I think we are, but I think we should be a church that welcomes and celebrates interracial marriage. I think, I think I don't know if I've said this, public. I think I have years ago, but I just want to get it on the record on the um, interwebs or whatever we put this thing on. Um, I just wanted to say that I think interracial marriage is a wonderful and beautiful thing. And I think it has a wonderful opportunity to display the surpassing worth of Christ and how the very core of what a human being is to be in Christ and how beautiful it is to see two cultures come together in marriage I think we should celebrate that and be excited about that when we see that um, I would much, I would, be, I would be very okay with one of my children marrying a uh, person of another race as long as that person is trusting in Christ um, I think that uh, another way that this might work itself out is that we should celebrate and include various expressions of worship and music and we try and do that uh, to some degree here seen us do spoken word type things and um incorporating things in our worship um but just little things like that can be tangible ways that we should pursue um i think that i think one one way i think you know i've i've, I've preached in a couple african-american contexts and it's just a whole lot better preaching to black folks it just is because they're listening and because they're in it and I don't know, some of you, every now and again some of you will come up to me and say, man, man, I just want to jump up and say amen. And I'm like, do it! Right? I just think everybody's made differently, but I, I, think, I think if that's you, I think that would be wonderful. I think, I, think, I think just a very small little way that we can pursue diversity in our church would be just more responsiveness in corporate worship. Um, and I think I long for the day, I and mean, this is one thing that we occasionally pray for as a leadership team at Crosspoint is that we would eventually someday have multiracial leadership in our church, maybe uh, an African-American elder or pastor on staff and other ethnicities. That would be a a wonderful thing for us to, uh, Lord willing, do. Now, notice I said there, and then I'm going to end and we'll open it for discussions. I said wisely celebrate and pursue diversity in tangible ways. When I say wisely, I mean I think that there's ways that kind of out of white guilt or just a goofy sort of desire, sort of manufactured Sometimes white churches try and manufacture, like, let's do something to get a few black folks in the church. And then they just, it's just corny and dumb, and it's not genuine. And I just think that's just—that's not wise. It's, it comes from a good place, but it's not wise. I'm not saying we should be who we, uh, try and be who we aren't. I'm just saying that, that, that who we are as a predominantly white church should be more dominated by gospel culture than white culture. Let me just say that one more time: Who we are as a church, the loudest thing about us, should not be what type of music we sing, what type of preaching styles we do, what type of food. Although those things, those things are wonderful. I'm not. Let's. Let's. I'm a European. I'm a. I'm a white kid that grew up in California in the 70s. I like when speed Speedwagon comes on the radio, it speaks to my soul. I can't fight this feeling anymore, baby, right? And that's, to me, that's, like it just speaks to me in a different sort of way. And that's, that's not sinful. But when the loudest, most defining thing about us are those cultural preferences rather than the hostility Vertical hostility and horizontal killing hostility of the gospel. Then we have not yet arrived in this area. And, and listen, I, I, I think we, I think we have a bunch of people who are eager to do this. I, I don't. I've never had any sense that we have anybody. I just, I just think we need. I just think we need a nudge. I think we need to think about this. I think we talk about it more. We need to pray along these lines. I think. I think we're all willing to do this and to think along these lines. But let's let's do it. Let's do it as a church and let's be. Let's be a church that doesn't just understand the content of the gospel but, but runs with the scope of the gospel, the hostility killing gospel that makes one new man for the glory of God. Alright, with that any questions at all or comments or whatever Yes, Gregory Wood uh, we're getting microphones, Run, we're, we're running with microphones because we got, um, we're recording this You know I'm always good for starting something Yes, yeah, sir. Um, I am probably the only white Tuskegee Airman in this room. White Tuskegee uh, Airman? Okay. I, got, I got the coin to prove it. I was part of the 332nd um, squadron in Iraq that was the reactivated Tuskegee Airman uh-huh. or squadron. Oh, wow. And the thing that I, I garnered from that was I was so immersed in the culture of what that group of men and the struggle they went through to achieve what they did. Yeah. I think that had an impact on me. Yeah. And I think we should look at that. Amen. Amen. Praise God. That's right. I think that's getting, it really gets to what I was saying is I think we just don't understand the, some of the blind spots that we have. Like, come on, you, come on, this guy can do it. I think that's, that's, that's a little short-sighted. But thank you, Greg. That was a good comment. John.
1: I, I think it's important uh, for, I mean, maybe everybody knows this already, but I grew up in the South, um, and it's important for everybody here to know that through the last, I don't know how many years, uh, certainly my entire lifetime, there have been churches on both sides. Yeah. Uh, I'm speaking predominantly black and white because this is the South that have taught and some still teach that interracial marriage is wrong mm-hmm. and that really you can fellowship with somebody, but you there's a limit. Yeah. That, and if you go over that, then you're sinning. Yeah. And so you, we don't want to look anything. We don't even want to be close to anything like that. And we don't want people to accidentally lump us into that category. Yeah. Through our actions or yeah. anything else.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that, John, because um, that teaching s- springs from a, well, I think it springs from the sin of racism, it springs from Satan, but, but sometimes people will use biblical justification, and it springs from a horrible, flawed hermeneutic, hermeneutic mean a way, a lens by which you're, an interpretive way by which you're looking at Scripture, It gets to a little bit what we talked about Sunday. It's a way of looking at the Old Testament law, because there are commands where there are parts of the Old Testament where, where uh, God will speak His law through Moses saying, you know, don't intermingle with these people, don't marry these foreigners. And so from that, you know, these people have taken this sinful... When they, when they think that, they're completely misunderstanding what we talked about last Sunday, the role of the law. In that particular season or epoch of redemptive history, God is forming one nation. And he's making one nation, one ethnicity the Jewish people to be very distinct. And he's giving them laws about food and laws about cleanliness and laws about what they eat and all of that. And laws about who they should marry. Not because God only likes the Jews and he doesn't like the, you know, the uh, Hizzites or whatever or the Canaanites. It's because he knows that if his people, because they are so weak in their sanctification that if they marry these foreign women, they will take their gods. So it's not an ethnic distinction that God is making there. It's a religious distinction. He's saying, I need to preserve my people, right? But then those Old Testament laws, those civil and ceremonial Old Testament laws are fulfilled in Christ and they are done away with. So the same reason people, Christians are free to marry whoever they want of any ethnicity is, is tied up in the same logic of why we don't sacrifice animals. That command has, is, is done away with with the new covenant in Christ satisfying the law for us. And so um, when people, if you ever hear that reasoning and you're like, oh my gosh, Brad didn't cover that in the class. What do I do now? That's just, that's just a serious, flawed misunderstanding of what's going on in the Old Testament at that time. It's not that God is making distinctions between ethnicity. He's keeping his people religiously pure from pagan worship. So thank you, John, for saying that. Anybody else? Oh, come on. Anybody else have any thoughts or, oh, boy, how about that? It's, uh, it's unknown, which makes me really nervous. Like <laughs> it's Roswell, New Mexico calling for me or something. I don't know. Anybody else
2: have, have, have anything? Yeah. Oh, yes. Hi. Carlos, how hey. are you? Is Hello that everybody? Carlos? Yes, I'm yeah. Carlos. Yes. Hi, I'm from Puerto Rico, just in case. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Um, what you're talking about is super important. Uh, I will tell my story a little, yeah. just a little bit. Please. I came to the States two years ago. I went to Tennessee to do my master's degree. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that shocked me, was a real, real, a real shocker, when I went to the sh- to, uh, First Baptist Church, because I was looking for a church, I was raised in church. Mm-hmm. My dad was a pastor and everything, so I was looking for a church. <laughs> uh, everybody was of the same, same color, mm-hmm. same race. And I was like, whoa, whoa, what happened here? Mm-hmm. It's a shocker at the beginning, because at least for me culturally, in Puerto Rico, we come in three colors, white, brown, and black. Mm. <laughs> and we are all together and in, in, in the church. In every church, you see people of every color, every height, everything. Mm -hmm. And here it was completely different. Most of the churches that I investigated, like, Mm -hmm. was roaming around, like, for a month, were all of the same type. Then it wasn't until later on that my, who later became my best friend, invited me to his church. He was from Malaysia. And in that church, there were people from all over. There were white people, there were brown people, there were black people, there were Asian people, there were people from everywhere. Yeah. And I was like, well, if there is heaven, which definitely there is, this is what I imagine <laughs> heaven to <laughs> be. Amen. Amen. Because heaven is, a, is the collection of the yes. church, of the body of God, which is the church, which is all of us who believe in Christ, yes. you know, because Jesus, when he died in the cross, the Bible said that he, he died for all who believed in him, yeah. not a race, not a color, not, a, not someone specific, just faith. Yeah. Whoever has faith. Yeah. So it's really important to have not only that diversity, but like as you were saying, like pursue yes. that diversity in tangible ways. Yeah. In church, I don't know, maybe something that they did at that church that maybe could help. Uh, it's like somebody, like you were saying, have gospel in the worship. Yeah, mm-hmm. like that type yeah. of culture and stuff is yeah. really good because yeah. it attracts people from different. Diverse background, it doesn't stay in just one place.
0: Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Carlos. That's excellent. Excellent, brother. Yeah. Yeah, somebody back here? Ryan?
3: Um, I guess I just wanted to uh, kind of reiterate what you said before. I know you're speaking politically, talking about sometimes we get a defensive posture and yeah. immediately kind of want to yeah. jump into uh, self-preservation mode. And yeah. um, I think even as I examine my own self, I grew up in the '80s and in the South, and uh, I, I think I look at people that were born 15, 20 years before me, and I think, wow, they had—they didn't grow up in the context, and they—they they have a, a kind of a, a, a more bent, more of a bent towards racism or prejudice than mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the one thing that has opened up to me since being saved, seeing uh, just the reality of. How much pride I have, yeah. and how much I want to protect everything that resembles me, um, and and how much I, I root things, in and what I see that that uh, yeah. anything that that might uh, seem to be uh, attacking me or, or, yeah. or coming in, but to me the basis of it is just to kind of take some time and reflect and 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 see what immediately kind of triggers. A defense in me yeah to a point where i want somebody to understand me yeah and to kind of to 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 basically give me the benefit of the doubt yeah. that i'm not willing to give to somebody else whether yeah. it's over a political issue whether it's over a misunderstanding on a on a daily basis or yeah. something yeah. like that but that's basically what you said just amen
0: yeah that's good ryan thank you yeah yeah any other thoughts or comments dr d Danny Derringer, who is both an Ohio State and a Florida State football fan. So he's really stepping years. out there and rooting for the underdog. All right.
4: Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to put on my professional hat for a minute because yeah. I think that I have some relevant professional training in this area. And let everybody know what you do so a, we have contact. I'm a psychologist, and yeah. while I was a grad student one of my one of my jobs as a grad student was being an uh, assistant uh, TA for a multicultural class actually and one of the things that i think we do is we don't really look at how we view people um, and this is a critique on all of us but also on my profession we you know as a TA in a multicultural class it was hilarious because you have a book that tells you about all these different cultures and basically stereotypes about cultures but then it says don't stereotype. So we're going to teach you about this culture. And what happens is we as people look at people and everything in life in schemas. We develop generalizations to help us process the world around us because there's so much information to process, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, half of you, you know, probably quit paying attention when the AC went on. Some of you probably didn't because your brain's processing, you know, mm-hmm. this that or whatever, but you develop a schema for how to process yeah. all the information that's going on around you. That's yeah. why you're not thinking about yep. you know how the chair feels under your butt. Well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now you are. Yeah. Now you are. <laughs> but what happens is because of our, our brokenness and because of you know thousands of years of racism, yep. we have dysfunctional generalizations and schemas. Yeah. And you do so much better when you talk to somebody. I like what Brad said about having a conversation with somebody and, you know, some of the generalizations and some of the stereotypes aren't particularly bad because they're not bigoted, but you can't just assume that it's true. You can't assume that everybody that is this culture is going to think this way or feel this way. And we have within group racism, we have within group Assumptions that you know all white people are going to think like me about something, mm-hmm. which just doesn't work. And I think the, the best task that we can have as Christians is, like Brad said, you know, having humility. You know, have speaking the private stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, what we say in, to each other, but also when you're talking to people, if you have a question, a lot of times people are completely okay with you asking them if you ask genuinely mm-hmm. and you're trying to find out about them as opposed to just assuming about them. Yeah. And that's something that I think that my field misses the point on, you know, there's a lot of breeding hatred to in, you know, focusing on the negative. And there's a lot of negative stuff that the, yeah. the major cultures in any place in America, it's the white culture, have contributed to. But let's focus on the gospel and the individual people because the gospel's for everybody, but when I need to share the gospel, I need to share the gospel with that person right in yeah. front of me. Yeah, amen, amen.
0: Uh, Danny, that's a, a very good thoughts, and I think what you described in clinical psychology terms is basically sanctification. We have this schema, this, this, this operating system of sin, and then when we come to Christ, I wish, you know, sometimes we would just wipe it all away and we'd just go to glory, but he leaves us here. He saves us, and then we begin the process of sanctification where we have to take every old file that, that Jesus has removed to trash and we have to click delete on all of it to clear out our operating system of our faulty ways so that we would have one new man, so that we would, so that, that, that we would see the world through the gospel lens rather than the lenses that we bring. So great point, Danny. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody else have a point? Somebody, somebody, somebody's saying, oh, Marnie Reynolds in the back. Put a little pep in that step, Benito. Come on, baby. Let's go. Here we go. All right. There you. Go. <laughs>
5: I think it's easier to have a diverse church and a more cosmopolitan atmosphere yeah. like Columbus when it's bigger. Yeah. And and the reason I say that is in my experience, yeah. mm-hmm. the the church that I was in in college in South Georgia, um, and then Bruce and I when we first got married, we were there for several years up until, <clears throat> pardon me, up until Taylor was born. He was probably two years old when we left there. So we were there probably nine or ten years, at least I was. And we deliberately targeted the neighborhood that we were in because we were in an inner city area downtown. In fact, we were part of the SBC, and at one point they had said, you know, you guys really need to get out of that part of town because Mm -hmm. you're not necessarily being effective. Mm. But we were trying to target that area, particularly when we had things like vacation Bible schools and Um, prayer times. We had a um, prayer room and things like that. We tried to get people in. We went in the neighborhood. We followed up, and they just wouldn't stay. They'd come for the events, but they wouldn't always stay. So I don't know why that is. I don't know why it's easier in a a bigger town like this that you can have a more cosmopolitan, diverse church, but it just seems like in small-town you know, maybe the South. I don't know if it's like that in other areas of the country. I think it is, yeah. It's more difficult, and it's not that we're not friendly with each other. I mean, we are.
0: Yeah, and I I think, I I don't think it's necessarily a sin for a church to be predominantly African American or predominantly white, but I think that there needs to be a gospel disposition in those predominantly white or predominantly black or whatever churches. There's ways, but great point, Marnie. It's it's certainly a challenge, um, and there can be little pockets like that, little churches like that where there's a white church on one corner and they're just wonderfully God-centered, gospel-loving people. And across the street, there may be a predominantly African-American church and they're just gospel-centered, sweet, God-loving people. And they may just have a great relationship, but eh, maybe it's just, it's just better for that. Yeah, it's fine. But there's, so that's a great point. I mean, um, there's just a thousand different little nuances we could make. One last comment before I read a final text and we, we praise. Good, good discussion. Anybody have... Vernon to say something. Carmen Albertson, let's get a microphone. Come on, you microphone guys. Come, give it a little jog, man. Let's see what you guys want, want to be in the game. All right.
5: Being right. a person of color, sometimes <laughs> the attitude is you're expecting it to come at you. Uh-huh. You're expecting that judgment to, to hit you. Uh-huh. You're expecting to be, um, you know, racially judged. Yeah. You know, so... That's a good point. And yeah. then when you are you can get on your high horse, and that's where your sin lies, you know, so, you know, it kind of goes both ways. Amen,
0: amen, Uh, yeah, Uh, absolutely, absolutely, that's a great, great point, Carmen, great point. Any, anything else? Let me just reiterate, I, I I think, I mean, as I was preparing this, I was like, "I, I don't think anybody's Disagreeing with anything I'm saying here, but maybe Carlos mentioned it. Um, and by the way, Carlos and his little friends, that's a group of uh, music students from CSU, right? So Carlos plays the violin, right? All right. And Emma plays the violin and, and, and Teddy the trombone player. And I'd say all the other people think I've met. Um, but anyway, they are hungry college students. So look for them on a Sunday and buy them food, right? Um, so yeah, um, but what I think what Carlos said was was just a, a helpful uh, sort of you know underline is that I don't think we I think we all desire this, but like there's a thousand implications of the Christian life that I I just desire and, and want to do better at, and, and that's just why God gives us the community because he just he uses us to push on each other and say hey we like we need to do better in this area like let's let's, let's come on let's let's make this something that we're thinking about and praying about so that. Um, what what that picture that Carlos painted for us, um, which is I think is just a, a, a biblical um, pre, uh, picture, uh, it would just would just um, would just settle in our hearts. So where's that text? It's in Revelation, um, yeah, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. It says, "After this, I looked, and behold, this is a picture that John uh, has of of, of heaven." After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb oh, praise God let's be a church that strives to make the Sunday morning at Cross Point look a little bit more like heaven is most definitely going to look like. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. So, praise God. What a wonderful church we are. I mean, God's been gracious to us, right? And let's just uh, keep trying to be more and more like Jesus um, as we go. Let me pray. Father, um, thank you for your, your, just your grace to us. Thank you that you, our greatest need was not primarily to get along with one another horizontally, but our greatest need was that uh, we had a hostility against you. And Jesus, your son, by his perfect life, by his sacrificial, substitutionary death, and by his victorious resurrection and his glorious ascension, has killed the hostility for all those that are turning, have turned and trusted in him. He has killed, he's erased, he's satisfied, he's extinguished the hostility between you and us. And Lord, as a glorious outworking of that, you also have killed the hostility between people that hated one another and you've made them one new man. May Crosspoint be filled with people who formerly had hostility against one another. And may we be one new man, a very small part of that one new man that is filled with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Lord, may it be so. May we see this in our day. We pray for our nation. We pray for our president. Lord, I am very grateful that we are at a place where an African-American man can be elected as the president of the United States. Having said that, Lord, there is much of his political um, policies that I think are, are uh, very much against your truth. I pray that you would bless him, that you would give him wisdom, that you would change his mind on some very important issues. Lord, I thank you for the other leaders in our nation. I pray for police officers who are daily in very difficult situations. I can't imagine how stressful it is to be a police officer in any city, but especially in major urban environments where there's just decades and decades and decades of social ills. Lord, would you be with our police officers and with our, our uh, firemen and uh, all, all the, just the city officials that are just at the razor's edge of this tension. Would you give them wisdom and courage and Uh, Just your grace. And Lord, we pray for our city. We pray for various neighborhoods. I pray for Booker T. Washington and other housing projects and and Peabody and all these places. I know some of those may have have gone away and they're called something different now. The the south side and the east side. I pray, God, that you would just move, that you would breathe your Holy Spirit through this town. I pray for the predominantly African-American churches in our city. I pray for your grace to them. I pray for white churches. I pray for your grace to them. And I pray, Lord, that the body of Christ in Columbus and at Cross Point over the decades would just begin to look a little bit more and more like Revelation 7. And Lord, I pray all of these things for the glory of your name, for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.